Josiah, who pulled down the high places, and that's it. I mean, you can't even talk about Solomon because he put up the high places. This is what men do when they become king. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, I do give you the praise and the glory for your Word. It's your Word. You're the author. You're the one who worked through inspiring men whom you redeemed by the blood of the Lamb to author your Holy Word. I give you the praise and the glory as these words did not come from men, but only as they were inspired. I thank you, Lord, that they were given the freedom to write and at the exact same time, only the inspired word, I can't comprehend it, is part of your glory. It's that I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Lord, there's a wonderful truth and reality in being lost in Christ where we're the channel through whom you work. And we're all meant, we're all called to that place of being spirit-filled, spirit-led, directed by the Holy Spirit of God. I know, Lord, we, none of us do it to perfection, but that's our desire, and we long for that day when we will, along with so many have gone before us, be the souls of righteous men made perfect. For now, Lord, we seek your name, we seek to worship you and to be used of you. Use me in the, in the speaking forth this word today and open the hearts and the minds of the, those who would listen and hear and allow them to be blessed not with my words, but with your word. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, what we're going to look at, as found in uh, as episode 60, which is, I'm calling it godly sorrow. It's a lot more than that. But what's the evidence of salvation? What's the evidence of a changed life? What was the evidence for, for Israel? What was the, what's the evidence for, for the Christian church? In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, Paul writing to this church that broke his heart, but he loved so much, so willing to sacrifice himself so completely for these people where they were, he was their father, but he also just continued to disciple and love them. And he wrote in six in seven ten after they had this is really the third letter we only have two, and you know where they just were coming around and repenting of so much sin in that church, and so he writes for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, 
leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Let me read that one more time. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Just as there's two wisdoms in the world, one is demonic, it can sound so good, it can be so enticing, it can be something which gives encouragement, and in the end, it ends in death. Then there's the wisdom that comes from above, from Almighty God. It doesn't just seem right, but it's based in truth. It is from God, it's good, and it leads to salvation. It's without regret, regret of turning away, giving your life up, placing it into the everlasting arms of Jesus Christ, and then pursuing his word, reading for knowledge, reading for wisdom, reading to know God. Not to know things, but to know the person of Almighty God. We might ask ourselves what repentance looks like. You know, it's a turning around It's a turning from one direction to another. It's a transformation of a life. You know, we might ask, what does fake repentance look like? What I want to do today is I want to look at Israel as a good example of the authentic and the fraudulent. I mean, they got it all. Israel is just an example of God working in a people. Romans chapter 10, verses 16 through 21. I'm going to do a lot of reading, a lot of assorted verses uh, from different sections of the Bible to bring it all together. Romans, you look at Romans uh, as it's written 9 through 11, and Paul is talking about the true Israel and the fake Israel. He's he's talking about the true people and uh, fake people. Look at this in verses 16 through 21 of chapter 10. He says, however, they did not all heed the good news. I mean, the news came through Moses and the prophets. And Paul says, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed their report? Okay, so the prophet's there, but who's believing it? Verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? On the contrary, their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? You know, the story of Egypt and Israel, it's been known in the world now, certainly, with the expansion of communication. But he knew back then, in the first century, that that story had become well-known around the world. I mean, you just don't have plagues and miracles and all these things happen and people don't talk. Whether they believe it or not is another thing. But the word goes out, and it did go out. Verse 19, but I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? Did they? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous with those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, now this is Gentile nations he's talking about. In verse 21, and that's why he says, but as for Israel, he says, I have spread out my hands all day long to a disobedient and obstinate people. 
Don't be, let's not be quick about jumping on Israel. That's not the point here. The point is that Israel is like the rest of the world. You can choose people out and you can say, you're a Christian. You're a, you're a Jew. Well, you're a Jew because, you know, you're a descendant of Abraham. Or you're a Christian because you were born to a Christian family. That's not faith. That's not a transformation of mind and heart. What that is is a man doing a thing or you know, self, pro, self-proclamation that I am a Jew or a true Jew or I am a, 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 a Christian. You know, just because you're born in a, in a bakery doesn't make you a bagel, okay? That's, that's not how it works, and that's what Paul's kind of alluding to here. Romans 11, 1 through 8, he goes on and says, I say then, God has not rejected his people has he? He's asking a question. So wait a minute. Okay, so the Israelites weren't paying attention. They weren't listening. They were obstinate. They were disobedient. Uh, did he, are they rejected? And he says, far from it. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, and that foreknow, foreknowing is not just to know ahead of time, but is actually to ordain, place one's love honor people, even though they may yet to be. It's like Adam coming to know Eve, and there's intimacy and bringing forth a child. It's an intimate knowledge. And he goes on and says, or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Quote, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars, and I alone am left. And they are seeking my life. This is Israel against a prophet of God, Elijah. But what is the divine response to him? This is right out of the Old Testament reading. And he says, quote, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, false god. In the same way, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Now, there's the difference between Israel as a whole and the remnant. Every nation presently under this, during this church age where people go out, proclaim the gospel, and some come to Christ. But Christ, Jesus said that the way is narrow that leads to eternal life. Few there be that go in that way. But broad is the way that, to go, that leads to destruction Many go in that way. So it's broad and narrow. It's, it's always a remnant. And so Israel's no different in that sense. It's not like they're worse than any other people. It's just that there's a remnant according to God's gracious choice. I'm not making that up. I mean, that's what it says in verse 5. In the same way, then, there has also come to be, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it be by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, since otherwise grace is no longer grace. I mean, if, you, if a person's working and they get to heaven, they go, look, I'm here on my own uh, obedience. I'm here on my own merit. I, I merit heaven. I got these badges on my chest. You know, then it's not grace. Grace is despite yourself, because you're a sinner, and I, I died for you on the cross because I chose you to be with me for eternity, which is an act of grace. You're not here because of you. Nothing to do with you. Just read through Ephesians 1. This is all about 
grace. So on verse 7, he goes and says this, What then, what Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Again, I'm not making these things up. I'm just quoting from Paul as he's writing in Romans chapter 11, as he gets down to verse 8, and he says, What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. Israel, by and large, tried to get in to heaven through the law. Under the Pharisees, under, under, under false prophets, under false priests, you know, there was always this matter of the law, the law of Moses, the law, you've got to keep the law, you've got to do this. You know, the sacrifice missed the whole point that he's being slaughtered, and by his blood, you're, you're, you made your way into the kingdom. The remnant believed that. The remnant had faith, but the rest were, were hardened. Those who were chosen, Paul says, obtained it. You can do what you think what you want with all of that. I'm, I'm just going to quote Paul, and I'm going to go with, quote, uh, with Paul the rest of the way. Now, in Israel, under the plague of quails, where they just say, I wanted to have meat, and God says, you know, can, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to give you meat for a month. And then Moses just goes off and says, well, really, where are we going to get meat? We're going to slaughter every animal we have. We're going to have meat for a month. And, and God's like, just, just chill, Moses. I'm going to take care of this. And then he sends quails that, you know, fly so low they could just grab the people. And that's what that whole measurement is about. And they just quails, quails, quails until the people were puking out quails. They didn't want them anymore because... Of course, meat goes bad, and you got to keep it fresh. And, you know, it just became disgusting because why? The people were complaining as if God wasn't providing manna from heaven. Oh, they get tired of the manna. Well, you know, that's the way food is. You eat rice every day, you get tired of it. Oh, you wanted to change it up, but you're living, right? And God's given it, and you're not even working for it. I mean, you're not tilling the soil. You're not doing anything. You go out, you pick it up in the morning. It's there. It's food. You do what you want with it. You know, it's always about complaining. But these are God's people. So in, in, uh, in this, this section, in, uh, in Numbers, it says, The Lord therefore said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting and have them take their stand there with you. Verse 17 I'm sorry, this is from Numbers chapter 11, and we're reading 16 through 30. The Lord therefore said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people, and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and have them take their stand with, there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take away some of the Spirit who is upon you, and put him, that's the Holy Spirit, upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you will not bear it by yourself. And you shall say to the people, Consecrate yourself tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Oh, that someone would give us meat to eat, for we were well off in Egypt. Oh, poor me. Therefore, the Lord will give you eat. Meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat one day, not one day, not two days, not five days, not ten days, nor twenty days, but
but for a whole month until it comes out your nose and makes you nauseated because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? Not a good attitude. But Moses said, the people among whom I am included are 600,000 on foot. Yet you have said, speaking to God, I will give them meat so that they may eat for a whole month. Our flocks and herds be slaughtered for them so that it will be sufficient for them? Or are all the fish of the sea to be caught for them and that it will be sufficient for them? Then the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord power too little? Now you shall see whether my word will come true or not. Verse 24, so Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. He also gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and positioned them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, and he took away of the spirit, some of the spirit who was upon him, that's Moses, and placed him, the Holy Spirit, upon the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. Yet they did not do it. Again, now this is a point isn't about the quail and whether or not they're Christian or what it looks like. That's really not my point. The point is in the context of these 70 men. Because it goes on in verse 23, it's a great portion of scripture, as they all are, and says, but two, two men had remained in the camp, and the name of the one was Eldad, and the name of the other Medad, and the spirit rested upon them. Psyches is, is staying there on these two for whatever reason. And they were among those who had been registered but had not gone out to the tent and they prophesied in the camp. So a young man ran and informed Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, Nun the personal servant of Moses from his youth, these two are long-term friends, responded and said, My Lord, Moses, restrain them. But Moses said, this is really interesting what Moses says here. This shows the Deuteronomy passage is true when it talks about Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth, just like a Job. You know, just it's always about humility. And Moses said to him, to, to Joshua that he loved so much, Are you jealous for my sake? If only all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would put his spirit upon them, then Moses returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. What's Moses saying? You know, Moses would not have to deal with Israel as a complaining, weeping, griping people, a faithless, godless, disobedient, stiff-necked, hard-hearted people, if they were all prophets. If they all had been transformed, if they were all godly, if they were all repentant from the heart, if they were being changed into something that was saintly, good, holy, focused on God, Moses wouldn't have had a problem. No headaches. He could sleep through the night. No, you know, no, no people knocking on the tent, you know. You brought us here to die in the wilderness, you know, all it has gone. But it's more than that. Moses would have liked it. Now, contrast that 
with a man who likes authority. A man like Demas in, in, the, in the New Testament, you know, who just, Demetrius, I'm sorry, just liked first place. He liked to be in the place of the spotlight. This is not Moses. This is no godly man wants the spotlight. Let's consider Israel's calling. And I'm going to back up a little and go forward, but you know, we're, we're focusing on Israel, and, and in the end, we're going to be focusing on what godliness really looks like, and it's always humble. First, there was the family unit. The basic family unit was designed by God with Adam and Eve at creation. Israel was organized as the children of Israel, grandfather Abraham, first chosen by faith, his faith. The Jews were divided by the sons of Israel, 12 tribes, the tribes being the largest of the family groupings all the way down to the smallest unit, the father, the mother, and the children. It's all about family. Groupings may be big, you know, a whole tribe, you know, but it, they're, they're genetically speaking very close and they're, they're family. Of course, the closest unit is that, that's a single unit. Second, there was the giving of the law. Idolatry was out. The worship of the one true God of Israel and giver of the law was supreme. Four commands were given just worshiping and focusing on God alone. Six commands was in how they treat one another and in that treatment of one another you see whether or not you love God. And it's, it's not about breaking all those little commandments. It's about do you love God or not. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. Deuteronomy 6, 5-9 Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. There's just one, three persons, one God. Verse 5, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These words which are commanding, I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. doesn't matter if they're just in your head. That doesn't mean anything. This isn't about intellectualism. This isn't, a, isn't about scholarship. This is about the heart. Is it changing the heart where we live, how we practice, how we treat one another, what we think of ourselves? Am I a sinner saved by grace, or do I need the spotlight? Verse 7, and you shall repeat them diligently to your sons. Back to the, the unit, the family unit. Repeat them diligently to your sons and speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk on the road. When you lie down and when you get up, you shall also tie them as a sign on your hand. You're just always looking at it. Not to become so familiar that it disappears, but it, this is important. Am I serving God? And they shall be on the frontless of your foreheads, so everybody else can see it in the family. You shall also write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What's always looking for the law? Are we thinking about God or is this just about me? Okay, so you got the law, you got the family. Third, you got the worship was to reign supreme. Going on verses 10 through 15 in Deuteronomy 6, quote, Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and carved cisterns which you did not carve out, vineyards, olive trees, which you did not plant, and, and you eat and are satisfied. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is what God is doing. 
this is to the people of Israel, this is to the church. Don't forget who's doing this thing. With all your great learning and all your expertise and all your denominationalism and all, all of the, the, the things that you recognize as wonderful, in all of that, do not forget that this is about God. He's the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt and the house of slavery. You, verse 13, you shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For the Lord, your, the Lord, your God, who is in the midst of you, is a jealous God. So follow him, or else the anger of the Lord, your God, will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. This is a warning to Israel. Got to keep these things straight. And again, training of the family, Deuteronomy 6, 20 to 25. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, what do the provisions and the statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord our God commanded you? They're asking this. This is about, look, pass this on to the next generation. Make them a focus. Live a godly life so they will be inspired by your life. This is the command here. Verse 21, Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord provided great and terrible signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. He brought us out of there in order to bring us in, to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. So the Lord commanded us to to follow all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our own good always and for our survival as it is today. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to follow all his commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us not, not to earn heaven, but because God has provided a way through the blood of the Lamb, which points to Christ, the coming of the Messiah. Let, her, let us now further consider Israel derailed. We see how the commandments came, how the children, how the family was placed in its proper place, how they're supposed to organization in Israel as a people of God. 1 Samuel 8, 4-9 says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the matter was displeasing in the sight of Samuel, and they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. I mean, this is just upsetting him, and he's sending him to his knees. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people regarding all that they say to you, because they have not rejected you, there's a rejection going on here, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them out from the land of Egypt to, to this day, in that they have abandoned me and served other gods, so they are doing to you as well. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall warn them strongly and tell them, uh, of the practice of the king who will reign over them. I'm not sure how people look at what happened here. 
the sovereignty of God is an, an interesting subject. Um, it's not meant to be used. Um, it's meant to be understood. And what I mean by that is, you know, people look at the sovereignty of God and it's like everything turns out okay in the end. They love the sovereignty of God then. But the sovereignty of God is that God is in control. He has the last say. He has the final word. Now here the final word is, I'm bringing judgment on Israel. And the judgment is, they don't want me as king, and so I'm going to let them have kings. Don't, do not be misunderstand. This isn't in the, the, the plan of God as this is the first perfect choice. The first perfect choice was no king. Okay, uh, We want separation from the world. We don't want you behaving like the world. We don't want you following the idols of the world. I'm going to go into this in a little bit. That's not the point. The point is the kingdom is set up a certain way. We've got Levitical priests who are taking care of the sacrifices, the, the giving of, of tithes, all set up in this kingdom by tribes and by judges. People, they're always going astray. And what happens? God chooses a judge. And I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but this is where we're going. Second, they departed from the judge's chosen way. And this is exactly what I'm talking about. Here is they, they wanted a king. The result, 40 kings. 20 in Israel, 20 in Judah. Of those 20 in Judah, five were godly. There weren't any godly in Israel. So you got 35 kings and you got five godly, but even of those five godly, they didn't all walk in the ways of their father David um, by pulling down the high places. Only one did that. So you got David, and you got Josiah, who pulled down the high places, and that's it. I mean, you can't even talk about Solomon because he put up the high places. This is what men do when they become king. You know, for the millennial kingdom, when God restores Israel, and he uses Israel in the first seat, the first place of bringing people to Christ, of judging justly on the earth, the church will be there, you know, but the first spot is fulfilling all the promises to the nation of Israel, and using them in this, this first place, the 144,000 among all of them, first place, and then comes the church and all those positions and how God fills them all. I'm lost as to all those details. It doesn't matter. If it would matter, it'd be in the scriptures. But Israel has got the first place there. And God, in the person of Jesus Christ, is king. No, No little kingdoms, no little kings putting up all, you know, even Solomon, you know, he builds the temple and he builds his house twice as big and he's doing all these buildings and he's, he's talking about plants and flora and all these things. And what about God? Well, he's writing Proverbs and he's doing all this, but, but are the people really being led to worship God during that time? And I'm not just, this isn't just about Solomon. This is about everything that came forth after Solomon and before. You got David a special man by God's grace. And he was special. So God raises up, fourthly, God raises up prophets. We'll focus on Elijah for a minute. 1 Kings 18, 36 to 40. 
Then at that time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, 1 Kings 18, Elijah the prophet approached and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that this people may know that you, Lord, are God, that you, Jehovah, are Elohim, strong, faithful ones, and that you have turned your heart back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offerings and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trenches. When all the people saw this, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. Jehovah is our Elohim. Jehovah is, he is Elohim. Now they're worshiping the one true God. They see the fire come down out of heaven. They see the faith of Elijah. And now they're worshiping. Then Elijah said to them, get this, it's important. Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the book Kishon and slaughtered them there. Now this is where the disciples come in, and Lord, shall we call down fire from heaven? And you know, we're not really about doing that now. Guys, let's just get this straight. We, we're going to distinguish between right and wrong, and in our group as a church, we're going to hold each other accountable. It's all to just read, start from Matthew 18 and go on. Uh, accountability is all through the New Testament. Why? Because we're supposed to be the light of the world. We're not supposed to be a dark place. We're not supposed to say one thing and do another. God, just follow Jesus in Matthew 23, and it's hypocrite, hypocrite, hypocrite. Jesus hates hypocrites, and he hates hypocrisy. And I know I'm not perfect, and none of us are. We're not talking perfection. We're talking direction. If you're following Jesus, if you're praying every day, if, you, if you're making him first place, that's a whole different life than putting yourself on the throne. This is about not just about the kings in Israel. It's about am I king or is Jesus Christ king? That's what we're talking about. During the time of the kings, God raised up prophets who prophesied against the kings and the people persecuted, hurt them, and killed them. During all of that period, fifth was the warning to remain separate from the surrounding nations, which goes all the way back to Deuteronomy and chapter 18. And I want to go back and I want to spend this look at this. <clears throat> this they did not under the kings. This separation was prior to, was meant to be. In Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 14, it says, When you enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. And that's exactly what happened under the kings. Verse 10. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. You want to talk about abortion? One who uses divination, soothsaying. One who interprets omens or a sorcerer, demon worship. It's growing in America. It's been here for a long time and it's really growing now. <clears throat> one who casts spells, mediums, spiritists, or one who consults the dead. These things are just out. For whoever does these things is detestable to Jehovah. And because of these detestable things, Jehovah your Elohim is going to drive them out before you. This is prior to getting into the land. 
This is uh, they're standing on the shore. They're, they're going to cross the Jordan. Verse 13, you are to be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations which you are going to dispossess. Listen to soothsayers, diviners, but as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. These people are demon-possessed. You want to know why there's so much destruction for Israel coming into the land? 400 years extra these people got. And with the 400 years they got harder, worse, they were at the bottom of the barrel. People can grow harder. They can grow worse. Just read Judges, chapter 2, 1 and 2. And you see, every generation gets worse and worse and worse. It's now, we're not all the same. Generations in America, when the Puritans came over, not like today, were they sinners? Did most of them go to hell? Absolutely. But th that doesn't mean it's all the same. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 22 goes on, says 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses speaking. From among you, from your countrymen, to him you shall listen. What did Moses do? He, he gave the law by God's hand. This is in accordance with everything that you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Do not let me hear the voice of the Lord my God again. Do not let me see this great fire anymore, or I will die. The mountain's shaken. It's covered with... It's, it's, it's vibrating to their to their stomachs are sick and they had headaches and they're just frightened literally almost to death. Verse 17, And the Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up for them a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them everything that I command him, and it shall be, it shall come about that Whoever does not listen to my words, which he speaks in my name, that's Jesus Christ, because he was God, made man in my name, that's God's name, only one person can do that. I myself will require it of him. It, what? What he says, what Jesus says, my words, which he speaks in my name, I myself will require it of the person who hears this. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously, okay, this is, a, this is a presumptuous prophet. This isn't a real thing. This is one who's speaking in the name of God, but he hasn't been sent by God. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, a word which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that, shall, that prophet shall die. It kind of makes it clear on where God stands on those prophets. And if you say in your heart, how will we recognize the word which the Lord has spoken when the prophet speaks in the name of the Lord and the thing does not happen or come true, this is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You are not to be afraid of now, saying things ahead of time and having them all come to pass. Well, let's just look at Jonah for a second. We talked about him not too long ago. You know, he, everything he said <clears throat> was going to take place, but it didn't. But it was an option. If you repent, it won't come to pass. So that did come to pass. And when a, the gospel is preached and a man's life really changes, that's a true prophet. That's evidence that that's a true prophet. Now, God can use a 
a donkey to speak, and he can save, he can raise up rocks, you know, to this generation if he wants. Um, that's not the final word, but when the, a true prophet, who's consistent with what he says and he does, that prophet really brings the true gospel, and the evidence is the transformed life. Lastly, let us uh, close considering Jesus Christ and the church. Jesus Christ and the church. First, Jesus had many followers, but only 12 disciples turned apostles. Mark 3.13 says, And he went up on the mountain, summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, so that they would be with him, and that he would send them out to preach. So this is a, a close relationship of 12 men. Jesus is setting forth the dynamic. You know, you got tribes in Israel, but in the tribes you had elders. And, and at one point, the, the, the 70 elders had the Holy Spirit fall upon them. And they were speaking for God. And then there were two, and it just remained on those two. And they continued to speak for God. And, and Moses loved it. The church kind of changes. It's not a, a nation anymore. Uh, you're not a Hebrew by birth. And, and a true Hebrew has never been one just by birth, but by birth and by faith. Moses was a Jew. David was a Jew. They were all Jews, okay. <clears throat> but some of them had saving faith, like Abraham. And through that faith, they were true Jews. In, in the dynamic of the church, it's an intimate group, an accountability group, and also bigger groups <clears throat> where there are elders and there's a dynamic of oversight and overseeing Always in the plural in the New Testament, unless speaking about a specific person. Elders are always in the plural. <clears throat> Second, the apostles did the work of teaching and raising up mature Christians. Acts 8, 1 through 4. On that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Get that? Except for the apostles. They stayed in Jerusalem. All the rest were scattered. Some devout men buried Stephen and mourned loudly for him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and he would drag away men and women and put them in prison. Verse 4, Therefore those who had been scattered went through, went through places preaching the word. These are not men running around going, We have no apostles. We have no apostles. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? This isn't we lost our pastor. What are we going to do? These are people who could do it. These are people who could disciple others. Go ye into all the world and make disciples. As you go, making disciples. Oh, we'll leave it up to the pastor to do it. Mm, let's look at history for a minute. Third, the history of the church. By the 5th century, there was the rise of a cult we now know as the Holy Roman Catholic Church. Now I say that, I know that's going to cause some people to stagger and get mad at me maybe. Stop for a minute. Don't get mad right away. I was brought, raised Roman Catholic. <sighs> Jesus said this. In Matthew 23, 1 through 12, Jesus spoke to the crowds and said to his disciples, <clears throat> saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, whatever they tell you, do and comply with it all. But do not do what they do. For they say, things and do not do them. See, he's beginning to hate hypocrisy. Law of Moses, absolutely do it. 
but how are they living? Verse 4, and they tie heavy burdens and lay them on the people's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with much as much so much as their finger. And they do all these things to be noticed by other people. For they broaden their phylacteries, lengthen their tassels and their garments, and they love the place of honor at banquets and the seat of honor in the synagogues and personal greetings in the marketplace, being called rabbi by the people or priest. But as for you, do not be called rabbi, for only one is your teacher. And you are all brothers and sisters. That one is Jesus Christ, by the way. Do not call anyone your father, for only one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, professors, and by the way, teachers is doctors. You know, for only one is your leader, that is Christ. A professor is one who leads down one down the path. You follow him. He's your mentor. Follow him. Follow him. Follow him. You know, this is, Jesus is not endorsing this. He's condemning that kind of thinking. There's the wisdom of the world and there's the wisdom that comes down from heaven. The wisdom that comes down from heaven comes from Jesus himself. Why? Why is he condemning this? Verse 11, but the greatest of you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. And whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. The great man humbles himself. He never takes the first seat. He never takes first place. He, he understands the importance of humility. So tell me, from what part of the Bible come popes and cardinals and bishops and priests? I mean, the, the pope is the, the vigor of Christ, right? He sits in the seat of Christ himself. That sounds an awful lot like a king to me. No king, because when you have a king, God says they're rejecting me from being king over them. Today in the church we can say, no Jesus, only Jesus. And I'm not coming down just in the Roman Catholic Church by any stretch of the imagination. Any place where you have a pastor, and the pastor, and all you have to do is read through First Peter and you get the idea, you understand Look, you're, doing, you're not doing this for greed. You're not doing this for first place. You're not, you're not doing this. You're, it's not just about Matthew 23, even though it's coming right from the mouth of Jesus. You're not doing this for the spotlight. You're not doing it for a place of honor. You're not dressing up a certain way. You're not having collars and all of that. And there's been godly men in history that have used collars to make a distinction on who they were. I'm not condemning them all, okay? Uh, George Fit Woodfield dressed that way talking about a humble man. It's not about the form. It's about the heart. It's about the heart. Can, it, can you have a single pastor in a really small church? Sure you can. Can it be a humble man? A absolutely. <clears throat> Is that often the case? Well, again, we're back to the broad and the narrow. We're back to the remnant or the whole group. You know, wh where's there an altar in the New Testament except in heaven? Ruling elders are those men who know the word like the back of the hand, and are anointed by God through the Holy Spirit, and not necessarily through a seminary, not necessarily through getting a degree. The Christian degree is a changed life. In the New Testament, that's the degree. 
It's the transformation of life. It's, uh, it's the degree is a changed heart, making a person obedient and exalting the word above him, his own self, his own opinions, his own denominational ties. All things get thrown to the curb, like the Apostle Paul said. I count them all as dung. Christian degree leads men to disciple other men. It grows people up and sends them out. It grow, when, when you ha, with all the churches that have thousands of people today, how many of those thousands of people are becoming true to the word in a spirit of humility and teaching people not, not, not just to have a group get together and, so that we can relate to one another and we can maybe even help one another, but actually growing them out, up to send them out. And then, you know, forgetting about what part you may have played because God was doing it through you if it was done well anyway. Those get just thrown at the feet of Jesus. Christian degree in the New Testament is an elder who is really elderly. Look, Timothy was raised uh, by Paul and he was raised by a godly grandmother and a godly mother and not a denomination, but by Christ. Timothy, uh, having been raised up by the Apostle Paul himself, is the exception. He's not the rule. Oh, what about Timothy? What about Timothy? You can't be... Look, <clears throat> um, changing a person's heart, we love this to say this, when we're, we're failing and we, we feel how we're falling short, if that's part of our thinking... And then, well, you know, sanctification takes time. But then when it comes to a, a, a leader in the church, we don't have any problem putting the 23-year-old because he's finished seminary and he's got his degree and he's got, you know, his PhD or his master's degree at least, and, and now he's qualified. Um, but, you know, when I look at myself or I look at others and I see how far, full, how f- far short we all fall, you know, then it takes time. But, but, but not for some. You know, some, they have a calling and they're... Uh, are we going to be scriptural? Are we going to be obedient to God? You know, was there a place for kings in the in the Old Testament? No, there wasn't. But there wasn't anyone who stood up either and said, this is wrong. I mean, even the good kings, even the Josiah himself, you know, he didn't have a great end because there's something about 1 Corinthians 8, 1, that's absolutely true because it is God's word. And it says, you know, according concerning things sacrificed to idols, we all have knowledge. We all, we all get idols. That's where we live. That's where we began. Um, but knowledge puffs up. Knowledge inflates in the Greek. It just takes the head and a, you know, just big head through knowledge. And we have our seminaries and we got our degrees and we got our places. And that's why, you know, a brother of mine comes to me after going to seminary and he says, I went to my professor and I said, can you disciple me? And the professor said, I wouldn't know where to begin. That's, that's a seminary. I'm not saying all professors are that way. But the one I discipled, when he went to a professor, that's what he got. He got, I wouldn't know where to begin. Now look, there's something wrong in the church. There was something wrong in Israel with kings and there's something wrong in the way the church is. When, when you go to China, 
And in China, there's persecution. You can't grow over 100 because as soon as you get to 100, they're watching. And they will tear that church down and they will make sure you disband because they don't want any big churches unless they're the Church of China uh, to make it look like they're okay with the church. But they don't want to hear Jesus. They don't want to hear the gospel. They don't want to hear any of that nonsense. They want atheism. They want evolution. And they want all of that stuff. And it's okay to be Buddhist. But no Jesus Christ. And so the church survives and it thrives. How? By little groups. And you can have people overseeing many, many groups. At the same time, make sure they're staying on track and they keep making the gospel the gospel and the truth the truth and they're walking in the light and they're sharing things like what I'm sharing right now, but they're still maturing, growing older and becoming where they can beget themselves. And the father and the mother get together and they beget and they beget children, and those children grow up to be adults and mature people, and they become wise in their old age, and they beget, and that's the nature of the church. It's family, and it's all around the Father of us all and the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's the one who's the head of the church, and he sits on the throne, and get this, nobody else. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these truths as they just found going through the scripture, that we are to do things by the will of God. We live for the will of God, to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our head. We take our marching orders from him, not some denomination, not the way we've always done it, not the way we've been brought up. We do it according to what your word has said, what it says. Lord, raise up a people who will appreciate revival, and for that reason, pray to that end. Because when the Holy Spirit falls, Lord, we know that you make these things happen. You make men to disciple. You send them into the world, and they make disciples. They become mature, and they care about the truth, and they care about the word, and they don't just sit around for six days waiting for Sunday when they can hear God's word and then forget about it all again for another six. Dear Heavenly Father, grant that we hear these things and that we live accordingly. Not for our sakes, but because you sent your son 2,000 years ago who was spent on a cross because he who knew no sin became sin for us in our place. He spent an eternity in hell in a way that we can't comprehend, hanging upon that cross, because he's not bound by time in the spirit. He paid the price. He went to the the fullest extent so that we could be fully set free. The price was paid in full. And for this reason, we exalt your word, and I pray that you make us obedient in the heart to these things. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.